Welcome to the Rocks Bat Pages podcast. Filling a Barney-shaped hole <laughs> in, in, is our esteemed colleague Jasper Miras and Bowie. Hello, Mark. Hi, Jasper. And so let's get cracking with what's new in the library. Free articles. The main feature this week is the wonderful Al Green. Well, where do we start with Al Green? I mean, we've got three pieces that kind of chart different stages of yep. his career, starting with a piece by Tony Cummings in Black Music in 1974. Yeah, this is a good sort of overall view of Al's career. It's an interview with Al. He's very interesting. He, in, in those days, was fairly coherent. We will talk yeah. in a moment about the Vivian Goldman piece, which is less coherent. And Tony Cummings is a really fine writer about black Absolutely. music. Black music. And Al is a very interesting guy. I mean, one thing I think everyone forgets about Al is that he actually wrote most of his material. Yeah. If he was white, he'd be regarded as a great singer-songwriter. And for some reason, with the exception, really, of Bill Withers, most black artists... Are just seen as recording artists. Exactly. So it's a great piece. I love what you, that Yeah. I've got, like, what I like is he says that his first few big hits, uh, he describes as being a story. He says, all the songs are a story. The story says, I can't get next to you and I'm tired of being alone, so let's stay together because look what you've done to me and you know I'm still in love with you, so call me. next to you, It's a lovely, lovely sort of sequence of song titles that he puts together to tell the story of his own record success and where he was coming from, because he mostly wrote sort of love songs to yeah, begin with. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, something which actually is raised in the Viv Goldman, yeah. where I think in 1979, in the days of post-punk, there's a notion that people should be writing more politically relevant material. Sure. And so she's... I mean, the, the Viv Goldman piece is interesting because by 79, he was a on the verge of pretty much quitting secular music completely. His album sales already in a slide. He had become a fully ordained preacher in his church in Memphis. But he was really kind of... It was a hopeless interview. And Vivian writes, Green barely spoke, and much of what he did say was an evident put-on. If Al Green wasn't an ordained minister of the gospel in Memphis, Tennessee, I'd have said that he must have been getting up to something naughty in a bathroom after lunch. (laughs) Most of the time he seemed to be either distant and abstracted or, more simply, completely out of it. It was a disastrous interview. She has yeah. lunch with him and a bunch of Pie Records executives. Back to his hotel, and he basically just plays guitar and sort of sings lines at her and Gosh. stuff. And she says in this interview that she, she's got this tape of him singing and playing guitar. Oh, man. I, I wonder if she's still got it. I would love to hear that tape. That'd <laughs> me, be great, Me it? too. That, that, that would be an interview. would be fabulous to oh, post on the so site. Good. Anyway, he's, he's a real handful. The last piece which is Ben Fontara's from 2008... And he's returned to doing secular music again at this point. He'd after done a, a period of like ten, quite a, a long, a long time. Long. And he'd done two albums with Willie, his great old producer from the high record days, Willie Mitchell. Uh, we listened to one of them in the office the other day, and it sounds exactly it's like his exactly old like one from the seventies. <laughs> yeah. You know, right down to the quality of the sound having been recorded. Abs- like absolutely, that, that's partly because Willie Mitchell never stripped out the old gear from his studio. There you go. Um, that helps. Uh, and. Um, uh, 
And Al is very compostmentous. I saw him about oh, cool. seven or eight years ago at the Albert Hall, not expecting a great deal, sure. you know, and he was fantastic. Oh, great. Um, I mean, he played exactly an hour. This is a guy who sings to contract, yeah. you, you know. Did a bit too many medleyization of some uh, of his hits. Which, the classic, let's try and get all these hits in this hour-long set. But, but one thing is... Basically, he sings every Sunday in his church, so his voice is in fantastic nick. That's great. We love Al Green. Oh, yeah. I think you can safely say that. So, yeah, three really interesting pieces. One thing in the Ben Fong Torres piece that I liked was that he actually talks about his period of being purely involved in gospel music. And he says... I went around knocking on people's doors telling them, hey, I've been saved. I couldn't keep it to myself. And this guy looked at me and said, yeah, sure you have, weirdo. <laughs> I just think it's a nice little, you know, sort of lucid sort of thing about recognising how it must have looked to other people when he... You know, obviously, he was always involved in gospel music yeah, before. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 that's right. To then go purely into that and make it such a big feature of what he was doing yes, is slightly uh, different. I mean, the Vivian Golden piece does rather point to the fact that he clearly sort of did lose his marbles towards the end of the 70s to some extent. Um, I've seen a couple of TV interviews from the early 80s where he's pretty spaced out. Whether he's on anything or not is another issue. He does refer in the the Ben Fong's Torres piece to the 70s being a lot of cocaine, a lot of hijinks in the tour bus and so Mm, on and so forth. Anyway, so really three pieces from like three different chunks of his career, all well worth reading. Um, Absolutely. So we'll move on to our featured writer. Who's, who's that? <laughs> it's the splendid, the marvellous Anne Moses, who I have an occasional correspondence with. At the age of 21, she became the editor of Tiger Beat, which was the other opposition to Gloria Stavers' 16 magazine, but running from the West Coast while 16 was run from New York. There's a thing here, which I've talked about before, is about how so many of the people writing about pop music and the early mid the mid sixties were women and young yep. women at that. I mean, you know, twenty one to become the editor of the papers, pretty amazing stuff. She was major coverage of the monkeys. In fact, indeed, one of the features articles is a very difficult interview she has with Mike Nesmith. From sixty eight to seventy one, she was the West Coast correspondent for the New Musical Express. Here, in seventy two, she pretty much stopped writing about pop music, got married, and kind of left Hollywood, which I think. To some extent, she regretted. Before that, she'd had a. And she writes about in her marvelous book, Meow, My Groovy Life with Tiger Beats <laughs> Teen Idols. She writes about her love affair with Morris Gibb of the Bee Gees. Uh, but she's a sparky writer. You haven't read Yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to look no. at these, but I now want to because they sound great, actually. Well, I, I think she was really good. It's interesting, she kind of had a choice around 67. She spent a week in the Jefferson Airplane's house on okay. Haight Ashbury. I think she enjoyed it, she was interested in it, she did write about, uh, for the NME particularly, reviewed rock concerts and so on and so forth. But I think her pull was always towards pop music. Yeah, the Mike Nesmith piece is pretty interesting, because basically when he was a monkey, all the other three members of the band would talk endlessly to her. He would have absolutely nothing to do with it. And when they were filming their movies, she said, I increased my persistence, but to no avail. Finally, after I'd followed Mike around the set for one entire morning and remained unruffled throughout his rude comments and taunting remarks, he turned to me and said, Look, I'm 25 years old. I have a wife, a child, and another on the way. I don't have time for your teeny bopper twaddle. Only he didn't say twaddle. 
With that, I'd exited coolly, but inside I was steaming. <laughs> that also points to the fact that Mike Nesmith has always taken himself rather seriously. Yes. Yeah, he was right. possibly in the wrong band to be taking himself <laughs> seriously. Yes, band, yeah. Mm. The monkeys. Mm, Indeed. Mm-hmm. The other pieces are a really good sort of backstage interview with mostly Carl Wilson and the Beach Boys. And it's just a very good piece of reporting as much as anything else, of being there, of the other members of the band coming in and out. And the last thing is her intro to her wonderful memoir, Meow, My Groovy life with Tiger Beats Teen Idols which is terrific and it's very well worth the read, it's on Amazon and do buy it, it's a great snapshot of being in the pop industry in the mid late 60s very well worth getting Cool. I think that's pretty much all the free stuff. Yeah. Well, should we move on then to the audio? We for will the week, move on. Which is, in fact, so you will get some Barney Hoskins yep. this week, even in his absence, because <laughs> this is an interview. Who's interviewing Mark? He's interviewing Anita Pallenberg, the magnificent Anita Pallenberg, one time consort of Keith Richards and mother of one of his children, I believe. Um, and Barney's interviewing her in 1998 on the phone to talk about the women behind the men. It's obviously that's the, the, the basis of the piece he's writing. And, well, well, we can play a clip straight away. This is um, her talking about how, in many ways, she was a classic, one of the blondes that pop yeah. stars would go for. The rock and roll stars or whatever, the, the guys were still looking for the same kind of have a woman, the models, the, the blondes, the, the, you know, and it just happened that uh, amongst those there's a few intelligent and there's a few, you know, not so intelligent, but well, that's still, a- they're still looking for the same kind of ideal of woman, you know. It's just unfortunate that they ended up with somebody that had a bit of something between their ears, I think, you know. Right. I mean, I really think that they still have that same kind of, it's part of the, the rock and roll dream, isn't it, you know? Yes. So, and that I don't think that's changed. I mean, look at uh, the Oasis guys. Yes. Know, Liam and Patsy. Yes. There you go. And, and she kind of name-checks Patsy and Liam and so on. She's very interesting about how unequal relationships were, of sense of feeling useless. And yeah, definitely. She also, at one point in the interview, talks about not necessarily wanting to be feminist, but nevertheless feeling like she did have things to say and sure. that she wants to be recognised as more than just someone on someone's shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. But feels like it still isn't possible for that to happen unless there's output beyond, you know, musically or, or artistically. Absolutely. I mean, she, maybe... talk, she talks later in an interview admiringly of Yoko Ono, who yeah. she feels that she did that, or never lost sight of herself as an artist. Um, and she talks about it in the context of Courtney Love and so on and so forth, and, and how difficult it is to be a woman in the public eye who's only perceived of as being in relation to the man that they're sleeping with, essentially, yes. for intents and purposes. Hilariously, during the interview, Barney's phone gets into an interruption note. This is so good. And who's on the line? Marianne Faithful. Faithful. So he's on the phone to two moles, two yeah. stones moles. When Marianne rings off and he goes back to, to Anita, Anita's highly amused by this too. It's, it's a great moment. It's, it's funny as well because, of course, Marion Faithful is another one who wanted very much yeah. to succeed in her own right and managed despite uh, all of the uh, things that were put in her way. Well, uh, mostly her own addiction to heroin. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the one thing about Anita is Anita didn't really do a great deal, you yeah. know, to be fair. And she's cognizant of that when she talked. Yeah. Marianne had already made records, bef- started to make records before she met Mick Jagger. 
Obviously, she started going out with Mick Jagger, but they were produced for her. They were pop tunes. Uh, afterwards, Marianne actually really built quite a substantial career, m- making two or three really fabulous records. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Marianne is, is very interesting indeed. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly short interview. It's only about kind of 18, it 19 minutes It is well worth long. a listen. So there we go. So it, it, it is interesting. And just listen to it just for the marvellous interruption, Marianne Faithful in the middle, it's if great. nothing else. It, it's really good. Right, what next? Well, what's new beyond these delights in the archive? Well, we're starting off from a report in Billboard 64, which is an kind of unintentionally hilarious report on Atlantic Records showing interest in Scar, Jamaican Scar, yep. or as they call it, the Jamaica Scar. I'll read a little bit from here. It says, the Jamaica Scar is a Jamaican native dance that has northern equivalent called Blue Beat, already popular in Cleveland and Detroit, as well as in England. Most of the available records are by non-Jamaicans, which point one starts scratching one's head. Yeah. Existing Jamaica Scar discs include two by Capital, recorded in Jamaica, one by Smash, Millie Smalls, My Boy Lollipops, plural, number 90 on this week's Hot 100, recorded in England but with Jamaican musicians, and a new Atlantic disc uh, by Prince Buster and the Scar Busters, recorded in Jamaica and bought by Atlantic from a company there. I mean, this is interesting. I had no idea that Atlantic Records had shown any interest in Scar. Nor did I. Given Atlantic's interest in black music generally, it shouldn't be too surprising. No, it sort of makes sense. Yeah. This piece uses the word Jamaica so many times that it sort of starts to you get you start really you sort of forget like Jamaica is that a is that a word is that a place? This <laughs> says it so many times. I know. Great. I started mistrusting the spelling of it yeah. actually <laughs> after a while. But but it, it's an extraordinary. It's written from such complete ignorance of, of, of the form by some hack in the Billboard office. But it is great for that. Townsend, interviewed by the great Nick Jones for Melody Maker in 65. This is a pretty early interview. They're literally, I think they had had their first hit or so around Mm. this time. They were playing, still playing London clubs and so on and so forth. Uh, But a lot of what we know of The Who was kind of already in place then. Pete Townsend says, there's a lot of friction and offstage we're not particularly matey, but it doesn't matter. And they were notoriously kind of fistfights and so on and so forth. We think the mod thing is dying. We don't plan to go down with it, which is why we've become individualists. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the Who, Mark? Well, you know, some of that stuff I absolutely adore. I mean, certainly some of those 60s singles are breathtakingly good. I love the Live at Leeds album. I think that Tommy should be burnt, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm not over-fond of Quadrophenia either. Mm. I, I, my problem is I think that they started to take... Pete Townsend in particular started to take themselves terribly seriously... It's funny though because his his later solo material is is much less serious to my ears at least. Like you know, stuff like sure. "Let My Love Open the Door" is a. I, I'm, I'm not sure I've even listened. to I'll it. play it to you. It's funny. It's it's quite a funny yeah. jaunty little. He, he, I tune. mean, Pete's a curious guy. I mean, he's got his own demons, and that that that's always sort of shown with him. This thing about the mod thing is dying. In all truth. The Who present themselves in a mod band without actually ever genuinely sure, being a mod they, band. No, Whilst, let's say, the Small Faces, one could say, genuinely were because the Small Faces were consciously playing American R&B, which yeah. was the music of choice, along with, funnily enough, with Scar and Reggae. Moving to... Oh, this is great! <laughs> the headline is, All Night Graduation Party. 
Uh, and it's Lorraine Altman and Detroit Free Press in June 66. And she's basically reporting on a graduation party. Graduation at Lincoln Park High this semester was June 15th from 11pm to 6am, with 600 new grads filled the school for dancing, swimming, volleyball, movies and eating. Inside, the satellites and MC5 played for dancing in the cafeteria until dinner was served around midnight. I mean, this is fantastic. This is, has to be it's one of the earliest mentions of the MC5 yeah. anywhere in the press. And what are they doing? They're playing high school graduates. In the cafeteria? <laughs> I know. Chicken, ham and spaghetti filled the grads until breakfast around 4am. Between meals, the school swimming pool and gym were open for energetic souls and the thriller Psycho was screened in the auditorium for the brave ones. Dancing had resumed after the midnight supper. <laughs> it's it, such an interesting kind of period piece, it, basically. Ab- absolutely. And this is in the Detroit Free Press. So <clears throat> you realise even the Detroit Free Press is a fairly major newspaper. It's for a single city and so has this wonderfully parochial yeah. bits of information. And I like also because it starts sort of saying that graduation parties used to be house parties and then someone realised that it was causing far too much disruption. Yeah. So they had to move them into the school and make it official kind yeah, of thing. To sort of police these to sort of kids, police the kid. uh, basically. Anyway, so there you go, and there was the MC5. Yeah, <laughs> very early, 1966, very cool. And which ties in neatly with the second piece, which is from the Ann Arbor underground paper, the Warren and Forrest Sun from 67, which John Sinclair interviews the marvellous Sun Ra. And John Sinclair, of course, was the MC5's manager. It's the first part, the second part is going to go up next week, or actually a very long interview, and by far the earliest interview we have. Very long and not the easiest to read, because Sun Ra's pretty rambling. Sun Ra's pretty rambling. There aren't many paragraphs inserted. (laughs) When you say there aren't many, I think, other than the questions, there aren't any. But it's really fascinating. I mean, both of us are pretty interested in Sun Ra. Not that... Not to say I love all his output, but there's some fabulous stuff there, and it's just fascinating to see his various journeys. He talks at length about all his, his various bands and all the stuff that's going on. Absolutely. I mean, it, it isn't... The, again, I think a better journalist, and John Sinclair actually did become quite a good journalist later, a better journalist would be able to reframe a lot of what he said and made it actually kind of simply easier to understand. Yeah. And Sun Ra has this fairly peculiar cosmology he adheres to. Um, Wild metaphysics. Uh, but he's interesting, he kind of makes some interesting digs against what was then called the new music, which was free jazz. And he says a lot of musicians don't really see it. They got their new music and their new thing, and that's nice, that's the thrill. But what's going to happen after the thrill dies down? The only freedom they'll get is over in the cemetery. That Then they'll be free. It's a scientific truth. People are only free when they're dead. Actually, the second part, which we're going to be running next week, is actually better because okay. he starts talking much more specifically about the music and the activity okay, cool. of making music. And how, by playing other people's bands, he learnt about arrangements and so on and so forth. But, you know, 67, a long, long... I mean, this is about, what, 2,000 words? The second part's about the same length. So a 4,000-word interview wow, yeah. from 67. You wouldn't have found that anywhere else. No. John Sinclair and the MC5 loved out their jazz. They really? took, They regarded John Coltrane as a big influence on them oh, as cool. anyone else. I didn't realise. Very much so. That's um, really interesting. Moving on to December 69... Our great friend John Mendelssohn, a marvellous yeah. review of King Crimson at the Whiskey Argogo. <laughs> this is so funny. Um, and uh, and uh, John writes, They're rather quite civilised in performance. The guitarist even sits on a stool, demurely. They deal in poetic, image-laden lyrics, exude enviable restraint, even whilst their organist is blowing frenetically on his alto sax, can play at a variety of metres and play nothing less than ten minutes in length. 
No, these boys are neither guitar-smashing rounders nor pelvis-wriggling troublemakers, but rather artists, shrewd manipulators of myriad rock and other techniques. And they are boring, almost beyond description. <laughs> so good. I just love how long he takes to build them up and up and up and then just brings it crashing down upon them. It's Absol- so funny. Absolutely. It, I, have, I mean, I have personally no interest in King Crimson, basically, no. whatsoever. So no. this was kind of gratifying for me to read. I, I mean, their album in the court of Kings and Crimson King was uh, an album that all my friends at school had. I didn't. All my friends at school had. Fair enough. Uh, and its main value was sticking Rizzler papers together. Um, <laughs> 21st century schizoid man was like the hit. And yeah. I saw him play a free concert in the park. And now I'm... Mm. It's not to say that I you know, dislike them or their music or anything like that. It's just that I, it doesn't grab me and it doesn't no. take me anywhere. I actually it find it positively ugly. I think Fripp... Robert Fripp, the guitar player and leader of the, whose band it essentially was, has done some really interesting stuff, but not for himself. I mean, yeah. his work with Bowie and the Berlin albums in the 70s is, is, is remarkable. Yeah. And um, he's been involved in a lot of really interesting records. Apparently, this is, I've never listened to it, actually. There's a, a Daryl Hall album that he made, really? which got scrapped by the record label, but I believe is now... Oh, we should, now, we we should check that out. We should check that out. Fun. Moving on to Melody Maker 74, Chris Charlesworth interviewing, well, mostly Paul Rogers of Bad Company, and he talks about Paul Rogers thusly. He drinks plenty of brandy, smokes strong cigarettes, and treats most women like dirt, which they seem to enjoy anyway. Um, And then Paul Rogers says, We don't compromise to fashions and glitter and dressing up and all that, which is happening now in England. In my opinion, that style of band brings the whole tone of music down. Oh, God. Oh, I'm pretty uncool. Can you fill me in? I actually don't know who Bad Company are. So. Bad, 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 uh, Paul Rogers, his original band was a marvellous hard rock band called Free. Okay. Who I was and remain a huge fan of. When that band broke up, he got together with Mott Hoople's old guitarist Mick Ralphs, Simon Kirk, Free's drummer, and Boz Burrell, the bass player, and produced the most kind of meat and potatoes sort of hard rock mm. which proved to be a massive success particularly amongst the quaaludes swallowing denizens uh, of the midwest yeah, okay. um, uh, and, and I mean their first couple of albums had a couple of decent sort of rock and roll tunes on and Paul Rogers is a pretty marvellous singer he's now with Queen he's now effectively oh, really? becoming Queen's lead singer okay. which is a, a peculiarity <laughs> funny that he should then be talking about fashions and glitter and dressing up well, well in, indeed uh, I have it on very very good authority that everyone at his record label Swan Song still regards him as possibly the most unpleasant man they met in their entire <laughs> lives in the rock and roll oh, industry I read that with knowing that sure yeah <laughs> yeah 1978 NME, Bob Marley, interviewed by Charlie Murray. Now, he talks about his foot injury, his toe injury from playing football, which subsequently transmuted into the cancer which killed him. It's a typical Bob Marley interview where it's all written up in Jamaican patois. And I I think that basically he gets Charlie Murray helplessly stoned in the process. And Bob says, thing is, you shouldn't smoke so much. You shouldn't smoke herb like me. You should smoke just a little bit when you feel like a draw. And he just he talks about rest for I I mean, this is around the time he's recording Kaya, I believe, which okay. is, I should say, some of the least interesting music mm-hmm. he did. Charlie Murray, in the interview, asks him about the fact that he's, he'd got, he was revisiting old songs he had written 
way back. That, that in, really, from Nasty Dread onwards, he was constantly revisiting his old back catalogue. Yeah. Yeah. Exodus, which was a huge record, had just come out. Kai was the one they're making. And when did he die? 81? So, you, you know, it's, it's, the, it's towards the end of his career and life. I'd lost interest in, in Bob Marley by then. I loved Nasty Dread as an album. I thought that was just fantastic. Like Burning. And um, it, it, it's just that this creation of this sort of transatlantic reggae sound which would appeal to the American audiences, sure. uh, I thought just blanded things out a bit Yeah, I mean, I've always liked his music. Yeah. But it's kind of almost a shame that there are those, you know, f- five to ten sort of classic Bob Marley tracks that have just become a sort of bland anthem yeah. to white stoners. Yeah. <laughs> And it's <laughs> the, the sort of people who were occupying London yesterday. The sort of people who will be in Hyde Park on, on Saturday yes. at 420. Yes. But I think that the sad thing about that is just that it takes away from a lot of the deeply political stuff that he's talking yeah. about in it. And people are like, oh, it's just Bob Marley, like, let's yeah. have a good time or whatever. And I'm off, I see another busker doing Redemption Song. No, I will Christ kill sake. them. I will absolutely kill them. <laughs> Moving on to and the following year, and now this we did slightly kind of the wrong order because uh, last week we talked about Dave McCulloch's interview with Joy Division, which went pear shaped, and from about two weeks before that, we have now have Dave McCulloch's review of Unknown Pleasures, which he gives five stars to and clearly loves. And so, in retrospect, he went up to that interview and had his opinion somewhat changed. And it's odd he writes it all about this character called Andrew who's clearly sort of this guy in his gloomy room. He turned back into the room. For three days he'd been here, a prisoner of choice wrapped up in a room of permanent, chilling, deathly silent nightmares. The radio crackled in a chaotic disorder. Pillows lay strewn on a carpet like fluffy corpses. The clocks ticked with knowing assurance. A newspaper three days old was on the floor, engulfing something bloody and thick. He picked up a record sleeve. The sleeve was completely black, save the inscription of small white waves on the front and the tiny writing of Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures on the reverse. The thing was blank and inviting, so he walked dizzily to the record player that sat by the bed, placed the stylus down on the hard, licorice black plastic. And it ends with, Andrew walked to the bathroom. He was humming she's lost control to himself when the razor slashed ecstatically like a hungry vampire. Yeah, it's pretty creepy, this piece. It is. It's, yeah. I mean, I have to say my first reaction when I saw that you'd picked a Joy Division piece to talk about this week was... Oh, God, no, not more. More more (laughs) bloody Joy Division. It feels like we've been talking about Joy Division non-stop for about three years at this stage, given that we started talking about Joy Division on the podcast when Jennifer came in to talk about her book Joy Devotion. It's it's true. It feels like we've been talking about Joy Division ever since. Yeah. Um, yeah, But, but actually, this piece is really interesting, and particularly given the context with what you were saying about last week's review, I think it's worth talking about. I wish, in retrospect, that I'd posted these things in reverse order but um, there we there we go I mean he as I said he gives it a five star review and then he goes up to Stockport to see them and uh, has a row with them and then doesn't like them doesn't like them ever again yeah and sort of goes off them in a hurry but it's but it is again a kind of exploratory kind of music journalism that's interesting you know having this character that's talking about you know, rather than a straight-up review. It's not the kind of thing we see very often Absolutely. now. I, I think he's trying to capture the mood of the record in 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 some sort of way. And actually, in does, some ways he does... He does a pretty decent he, job he, of it, he, I he think. Do, he, does, he does succeed. I'm not sure about the, basically, suicide yeah, reference I at the end. Yeah, I think that's a bit heavy-handed and yeah. a bit kind of cheapening of the, of yeah. the thing, which yeah. is a shame. 
I think the last piece I'm going to talk about, at any rate, is a rather brilliant Frank Owen article on Peter Stringfellow, who is a club owner in London, died, I think, a little while back, but at this point had opened the Hippodrome, which was like an early super club. Peter Stringfellow gives really great quotes. I mean, <laughs> he says, if you don't make the effort, if you don't like glamour, if you want to be Mr and Mrs Slob, fine, but don't bother coming to the Hippodrome. He says, I'm working class, born and bred, but I wouldn't vote Labour. Labour can't offer me anything, whereas Thatcher can. Yeah. Um, then, almost presciently, it's, it's the age of communications, the age of the new technology. Everything changes so fast now. It's a clickety-click world. <laughs> um, this is 1986, yeah, so pretty... That, that's pretty smart stuff. Then the last one I absolutely love. Peter Stringfellow is both the most reactionary and most radical of pop entrepreneurs. He's both Malcolm McLaren and Bernard Delfont. He's both Paul Morley and Eric Morley. Now, for those who don't know, Eric Morley was ran the Mecca organisation and founded Miss World. Okay. <laughs> Bernard right. Delfont was a big part of ITV, I think. So, what, what Frank Frank Owen is one of my favourite writers. A terrific writer. Um, it, it, it's a very good line that that you know Peter Stringfellow's these two thing, these two things together. So that's my lot. What have you got for us? What have I got? Well, I want to start with a piece from 2002 about Ali G. Remember him? <laughs> this is Caroline Sullivan writing yeah. in The Guardian. About Ali G, but it's about generally pop singles by comics and yeah. comic acts. And it starts, as a rule, music and comedy are about as compatible as Marilyn Manson and Sunday School picnics. <laughs> this includes both inadvertently comic music, Victoria Beckham's solo output, say, and records that are funny on purpose, like the <laughs> Ali G shaggy single, Me Julie, which came out this week. We can absolve the poshes of this world on the grounds that their primary intent is not to induce laughter, but it's harder to be generous to people like Ali G creator Sasha Baron Cohen, who really should know better. Yeah. And it's pretty much true. Sasha Baron Cohen is one of those characters who really will push things yep. to beyond where maybe he should, both in terms of the commercial aspect of what he's doing, but also, of course, in the content of his work. Yeah. I've never liked him as a comedian, I have to no, say. No, I never really found it that funny. No. It's basically just crass. It has no subtlety whatsoever, and that's exactly what... Yeah. I don't know, what people seem to enjoy about it, but what turns me off it. Absolutely. But the piece is interesting because it's basically a comment on... She's worrying about how it'll affect his career, almost. <laughs> it lists all these comic acts who went into music, Benny Hill, Halem Pace, Vic Reeves, Richard Blackwood, and sort of feels like their careers were never quite the same afterwards because of customers' disappointment on paying four quid for a CD. Yeah, she's actually wrong to some extent, certainly because of Benny Hill, because Benny Hill was making records that she's pretty much throughout his comedy career. Yeah. As I discovered, going through piles of 1962 NMEs and so on and They're so forth. They're full of Benny Hill record reviews. There he is, you know. But yes, I mean, in fact, you could say this about most people, actors, comedians... People who aren't musicians attempted to make pop music yeah. is invariably disastrous. Just, it, I mean, I mean, who's that? Oh, it feels God. so cheap. Oh, who's um, the, the doctor in house of, um, you know, the English guy, and he did this blue. He's, he became a blues man, and it's just excruciating. Oh, yeah. So make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. The notion that. You know, if you're good at one thing, you could do something else. I'm just saying that it goes the other way. I mean, the number of musicians who have 
let's say, decided they could have viable acting careers, and it's invariably yeah. been ghastly, and that yeah. includes David Bowie. You know, no, you can't do it, mate. Don't. I think Don't bother. Don't bother. So next up is a live review of The Roots, mm-hmm. uh, Jazz Cafe in Camden. Not very far away from here at all. And it's interesting, partly for the fact that it mentions Kim Howells, who was the Minister for Culture at the time, <laughs> and he just said some slightly questionable things about idiot rappers, quote, yeah. glorifying guns and gun culture, and he got a lot of flack for that because, A, it wasn't really his brief. He was mm. supposed to be dealing with things like tourism, and then he sort of started talking a propos of not really that much yep. at all in some interview on the radio about how you know all these... Black people were glorifying guns and blah blah blah. And it was this yeah. problem and that problem. Uh, and I mean, he's one of a, he's case. one of a succession of politicians who yeah. make that mistake. I mean, the current thing is about drill, isn't it? And you got yeah. certain politicians oh, saying things about drill. You know, it's just, it's just ignorant and stupid. But the roots, the roots. I mean, the roots are really great. They're now the house band on the Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, which sure. is kind of bit of a waste of their a talent. bit of a waste of their talent. Really, I yeah. mean, although they do do some very funny, yeah. they're part of some very funny skits on that. You were pointing out that their lineup has changed pretty radically. Over yeah. the years, I mean, founded by Questlove and Black Thought, but then they've had all kinds of other musicians involved, indeed, including the hilariously named Tuba Gooding Jr., <laughs> who's, their, who's their tuba and sousaphone player. I, I mean, we, we, we both have a lot of time through it. So yeah, I first absolutely. heard about them oh many years back because my nephew and niece's cousins were brought up in Philadelphia and, oh, okay. and the, the Roots were the great local band, and, and so they had Roots CDs. You know, before yeah. anything had come out here, as far as I was aware. Before the roots were cool. Before the roots were cool. And well, I honestly like the cool. fact that they were people who played. I mean, Absolutely. I, I love hip-hop scratching and sampling, but I do love real bass and real drums. Great. And they also made a big point, at least initially, of not sampling yeah. and making their own music. Yeah. And they're very jazz-influenced. Yeah. They really kind of bridge that. I mean, obviously hip-hop is heavily influenced by jazz yeah. and samples jazz a lot, but they are in a crossover tradition. Yeah that has become more and more prevalent, or maybe has become prevalent again with people like Hendrik Lamar, yeah. and who will shortly be talking about Thundercat, but, sure. but more than that. I mean, you know, there are also, let's say, this loose grouping of musicians, but as you say, Primary Quest Love, in terms of the playing side of things, that they have backed all... I mean, they, they toured with the Dave Matthews Band, of all people. They also produced what I think is by far Elvis Costello's best album <laughs> in the last 20 years. A really decent yeah. record. Did a wonderful record with Betty Wright, who's an absolute favourite of mine. They produced work with John Legend, Jay-Z's backing band. Live, yeah. yeah. They were, the, the interesting thing mentioned in the piece is that, so this is 2003, mm-hmm. and Lisa Verico says, the old roots would never have been so frivolous, but headgear, they were all wearing funny hats, yeah. and their new laid-back attitude suited them. Soon the roots might even be famous enough to merit mention from politicians. Which is interesting because they actually, you know, they <laughs> did become more laid-back, and they then yeah. went on to work with all these people across all yeah. kinds of genres and different yeah. things. And... They've been pretty central, I'd say, to a lot, a lot. Yeah, and they're just bloody great. No, I, th- I, th- I think I think they're pretty fantastic. As a drummer, I think he's interesting because actually he's got a very specific sound. He's not what I call a tight funk drummer. No. He's actually got a quite a loose. He's got a loose hi hat sound. He's quite a kind of fluffy sounding drummer, mm. not what you'd look for necessarily. But he's, he's he's terrific, and they've been involved in so much really interesting music in re- recent years. Yeah, and also in interesting cultural things more broadly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Questlove's published books and yeah. stuff. He's a very, very interesting, yeah. deeply creative guy. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, yeah. 
He gives good interviews as well. You see him on t- TV quite a lot. He turns up in rockumentaries. Yeah. You know. yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, I mean, imagine if everyone, everyone did a big documentary about Al Green, they'd probably trot out Quest, Quest Love, Love to, talk, yeah. to talk about the, the Hodges brothers turn <laughs> and Henry Grimes' rhythm section at High Records. I'm sure you're right. Moving on, yep. I've picked a piece about Lenny Bruce, which is an excerpt from Gene Santoro book, Highway 61 Revisited. It has a section on Lenny Bruce that we've put up, and it's just kind of on the life and legacy of Lenny Bruce. It's quite long. Mm-hmm. I just found it interesting because I think Lenny Bruce is an interesting character. Yep. And from the piece, Gene Santoro says, As a central character in the great post-war American morality play, Mm -hmm. Lenny Bruce is usually framed by stark dichotomies of good and evil. And so he has usually been painted as avatar or prophet, tragic hero or manipulative junkie. Uh But Bruce still fascinates not because he was larger than life, but because he so clearly wasn't. In many ways a failure of a man and a fluctuating, undisciplined artist, he was both in and out of sync with his time and place. That's pretty interesting. I was... Find, I mean, not just because of their mutual addictions, but he and Billie Holiday, who was a near contemporary of yeah. Lenny Bruce's, uh, that the, the, there were some parallels in, in their lives, uh, and that they were addicts at a time when the force of the law in the United States of America was coming co- down very hard. Coming yeah. down very, very hard. I've never, I've listened to bits of Lenny Bruce and never found him terribly funny but I know yeah. other people who think he's absolutely the most hilarious thing on earth well, I, I mean I don't know if you've seen the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel recent television program no. about a female comic um, mm-hmm. and he actually appears as a character in that right and he's a great sort of louche character as part of it he's portrayed very funnily in that and I've not listened to much of his actual comedy work he certainly was part of the fabric and was deeply influential on a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the sort of 50s to the early 60s, you you have the Beatniks, you have the Karaks, you have the the Burroughs, the Ginsbergs. And whilst he wasn't part of that group as such, he was definitely a part of that sort of general sort of climate and uh, and set of attitudes. It's good stuff to have on the site, that's for sure. For sure. Last of all, mm-hmm. I've got a gig review of Thundercat at Heaven in mm-hmm. London from 2017. Mm-hmm. Stevie Chick in The Guardian. And I was there. So <laughs> uh, I got to put this piece up, which was great fun for me. Uh, yeah. It's a really good review, actually, and, and Stevie Chick really enjoyed it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great gig. I love Thundercat, I think. So he's a bassist. He's done session work for all sorts of people, right. including Kendrick Lamar, yeah. Marcy Washington, Flying Lotus, mm-hmm. Erica Badu. I was saying to you earlier that his list of collaborators is really like a who's who of contemporary yeah. hip-hop and I mean, what, jazz. And, um, one of the great advantages of having Jasper working in our office is kind of well under half our age <laughs> is that we get to hear stuff which is new which we probably wouldn't listen to otherwise and when you first played Thundercat in the office it's all our ears pricked up this is pretty interesting yeah. this is this is pretty good you were saying that your friends found it too loud too loud show. yeah it was really really loud was the sound quality good the sound quality was good uh, it was just noisy and heaven is an interesting venue yeah. because it's quite a high ceiling That's but right, quite a narrow it's got a balcony room. Room, room yeah. around top yeah and i mean i brought earplugs cuz i'm a responsible gig goer <laughs> uh, blah 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 <laughs> deeply lame but i was actually very grateful for them in this gig because actually the volume on one level was great because he's a bassist yeah the bass frequencies were really big yeah. and you could feel them kind of reverberating in your chest and that was exciting mm-hmm. and 
you know, you really felt it. And then the sound quality was good. He usually performs with a trio. I mean, he's part of he, him on bass, Dennis Ham on keys, and a drummer whose name I can't remember, but who is great. Mm-hmm. And he's an unlikely sort of front man. He's cradled his huge bass, yeah. which is a six-string hollow body thing. Yeah. It's gorgeous, and it's massive, and he's quite large also. Mm-hmm. And he then sings in this sort of, mostly in this high falsetto. That's right. And it's really fascinating because he's kind of self-conscious and, and uncomfortable and I think for a long time he didn't want to be his own front man he didn't want, didn't right. want to make his own music he right. was more comfortable in the shadows sure. but then figured out that he actually did have something to say yeah, yeah. and have something to express well we, you know, we were listening to stuff that, uh, this morning, again this morning and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really very decent the thing about the volume thing is that I, personally I find too many goods too quiet these days mm. I mean I suppose I grew up at a time when there was far fewer restrictions on volume control. Yeah. The other great advantage of being allowed is it means you don't hear the bloody conversations oh, God, of everyone yeah. around you. The, the bane of my life, I think all of our lives going to see gigs now, is that people won't shut up. It's inane conversation yeah. about it. And it means also that if bands stuff. want to play something quiet or a ballad, forget about it. Yeah. Because there'll be this roar of conversation. Oh, God, yeah. Well, interestingly, I went to see James Blake just last night here in Hammersmith at the Apollo, uh-huh. and the crowd were annoying, but... The gig was great, mm-hmm. and there was a moment towards the end when he wanted to play, and he was wanted to play a song that's quite a quiet one. His key's quite quiet anyway, but he wanted to live record loops of himself singing. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, if you guys talk or scream or yell during this, it'll be in the loop and it'll sound shit. So shut up. And actually, everyone shut up. Everyone shut up. And I think that's testament to him as a musician. I mean, yeah. his fans really, really like James Blake. I, I mean, you know, th- this is a real major issue for me because I don't know when it really first emerged as an issue. I'd say the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to see, I'm going to see Steve Earle at Shepherd's Bush Empire and he'd had his acoustic section on the set and suddenly I was aware of these people just having these loud conversations around me. So unnecessary. I'm not saying you should be reverently silent with no. an artist, but just converse with your friends right through the songs that you've paid money and yes. everyone else has paid money to go and see. It drives me round the bed. <laughs> and it's actually one reason why I very rarely go and see bands sure. play live now. But this, I mean... Going back to Thundercat. Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually, it was a really, really good gig. And Stevie Chick describes it quite nicely. And he says, it's not all wild excursions and cosmic bummers because of Thundercat. You know, he plays, it's in a way, it's almost sort of proggy and yeah. out there. And he, he does take his recorded music, which are usually, you know, pretty tight, one mm-hmm. and a half to three minute tunes. And he sprawls them out, and he does lengthy bass solos, and he, you know he does a lot of harmonic bass playing, which is super cool. I mean, yeah. if you haven't ever listened, I'd to love to. No, I'd like to see him live. He's great. I've yeah. seen him a couple of times. Yeah. He's just brilliant. I mean, he's and he's a funny frontman as well. Not all wild excursions, and cosmic bummers. Captain Stupido is so wildly loosely funky; it sounds like it was made out of rubber bands. <laughs> while Oshidit's ex imagines Daryl Hall fronting Parliament to narrate an MDMA adventure, boasting a monster "I just want a party" hook line. But it's the other strings to Bruno's bow, his mercurial flights of improvisation, his aching introspective songcraft that mark him out as a singular talent. And what I like is also the introspective songcraft bit. Yes, it's extremely yep. introspective, but it's, it's also very, very funny. It's mm. self-aware and descriptive of certain experiences. Like the, the aforementioned Captain Stupido, the lyrics, are, I think they're genius. High Falsetto goes, I feel weird, and then... There's a low voice that goes, comb your beard, brush your teeth, still feel weird, <laughs> beat your meat, go to sleep. <laughs> and it's just very funny. And then, then the only other lyric in the song is, I think I left my wallet at the club. I feel weird, comb your beard, brush your teeth, still feel weird, beat your meat. 
and it's it's yeah. it's really short. It's like a sub two minute song. Yeah, yeah, and it's very clever. Yeah, and then he has a song about Tokyo where he totally captures. I mean, I was listening to it a lot around the time when I went to Tokyo myself, and the central lyric is, "Can I just stay one more day? Reckless nights in Tokyo. Oh my God, it's Tokyo." <laughs> and you know, for anyone that's been, it really, it's, it is, it is that kind of. Can I just stay one more day? There's just this one other thing that I want to see. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. So huge and overwhelming. So he really, he really. But like, I like that. that sort of vernacular. Oh my God, it's Tokyo. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, it's, 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 it's no, great. It's, it's, they're very. They're, his lyrics are good, partly. Because yeah. because of their casual nature. One more song that I wanted to shout out is his song "Friend Zone," which I think is hilarious. Uh, do, you, do you know the concept of the friend zone? No. So you know the, the <laughs> idea, the, 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 the idea of someone being interested in someone romantically and that person friend zoning them, as in saying, "I just want to be friends." Ah, oh, right. And yes. so he talks about that experience. <laughs> Lyrically, so let me break it down for you. Don't call me, don't text me after 2 a.m. unless you plan on giving me some, because I got enough friends. <laughs> and it's just, he's, you know, it, nice. out of context, it maybe sounds a bit sort of macho male kind of thing, but no, he's extremely self aware and funny with it. And I, and I think he's hyper conscious of his own self. Sure. But he's managed to find a way of expressing it musically, which I just think yeah. is great. Don't call me, don't text me. Good. Well, I mean, you know, I, I've liked what I've heard. If he comes back to London soon, you're going to get me a ticket, aren't you, Jasper? <laughs> Great. Um, and on that note, I think we wrap this show up. I think we do. Are we got one more yeah, excerpt? We're going to go out with the, the last quote from uh, the marvellous Anita Pallenberg, where she actually talks about what we were talking about earlier, about the inequality of the nature of the, the woman within a relationship with a pop star and how there's, there's really no balance or equality there. And on that happy note, we'll see you next week. I believe that our esteemed colleague Barney Hoskins will be back. back. But until next week, we'll love you and leave you. Bye. Ta-ra. For me, all the, 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 to be with a rock and roll star, it's like uh, there's not much equality and not much of all the stuff that uh, people talk about now. Yes. Not that I agree on it completely or I'm a feminist or all that. Right. There's words that I don't really like to use. Right. uh, There is a lot of uh, that uh, going on, you know, and there was a lot of that going on. I don't find that uh, it's only down to rock and roll stars and it's all just down to all men. Right. With a certain kind of charisma or strength, you know, they always get, you know, I mean, you, now I've got the same problems now. I mean, they, they say I'm a witch, they say they just give me those names. Yes. And it's just a, just a lack of understanding and lack of, uh, you know. So That was Anita Pallenberg in conversation with Barney Hoskins in 1998, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. I think I left my wallet at the club.